is Ronaldo. Oh, my goodness. You don't save those. Out of this world. Messi. 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 From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. Welcome back, soccer fans. The first episode of 2022 is officially underway. This is FUVFC, WFUV's own and only soccer podcast, breaking down everything in the world of sport especially the beautiful game. Keenan Troy here, joined by Nick Guzman and Maddie Bimonte. Before we get into you know, all the craziness that's going around in soccer, let's start with uh, 2022 is here. How are we doing in the new year? I'm doing pretty good. Got about another week to go with the winter break, kind of winding down. This week, pretty quiet on the Premier League front because of the FA Cup, but still some good games going on. You know, elsewhere across Europe, big transfer news too. I'm excited to Talk about it all. Yeah, it's been good. You know, I'm excited. My birthday's coming up, and as my birthday present, Charlotte FC finally going to start their year. Very excited for it. I've been waiting for pro soccer in North Carolina, my home state, for so long. So this year I'm very excited for that, excited to get into that later and, you know, just talk and break everything down that's been going on recently. Yeah, and, you know, as we're coming out of winter break for us at Fordham, it's sad that it's continued to be an issue, but of course it is. That's COVID. And, you know, for Nick and Maddie, I think we should start there because we saw you know, an outbreak in the Liverpool camp resulting in their match against Arsenal and the Carabao Cup being canceled, or the FA Cup, excuse me, being canceled. And you also see, you know, in the Bundesliga, Dortmund losing about half their starting 11 with COVID. Dortmund couldn't close those points down, even they should have. So COVID is everywhere yet again. And I think the question now is on every soccer fan's mind is how do we proceed? Because we saw it in 2020 with the initial outbreak where you know we paused soccer for all of five months. And now it's getting up to that case level, especially abroad, where it's becoming a question mark as to how do we proceed, especially when camps are dealing with COVID. Know, across the entirety of, you know, from staff to players to everyone in between. It's getting difficult to really measure where soccer can go. I try to be optimistic because I think if you're not going to be optimistic when you're thinking about, you know, where COVID's going to take us, then you're just going to be waiting for dreadful news, which no one wants to do. So with that all being said, I think right now we said it's a really interesting time in the Premier League to start there because we've seen COVID breakouts, you know, in Chelsea and then Liverpool. And City's pulling away with the league. I think we can all agree on that. But how is COVID going to affect, you know, the title run through May? Because as far as I see it, as long as City stays fit, they're going to just continue to steamroll, which is so sad as a Liverpool supporter. 
but also with COVID lingering, it begs the question as to will city be able to maintain you know, negative tests, but also more importantly, when we open up Champions League again, we go on another international break at the end of January, how is soccer going to be able to manage all this hectic traveling and hope that league play can resume as scheduled? Yeah, the thing about City is that, you know, even if they have, you know, an outbreak and they're able to contain it or they have some injuries, they're, you know, their second stringers are just as good as, you know, probably 95% of the teams in the Premier League. So that depth is really what's carried them through when teams like Chelsea have had outbreaks and they've been short of some positions, positions, they've kind of slipped down the table more. In terms of the way the Premier League and, you know, the leagues in Europe are handling the situation in general, it's kind of interesting to see how, you know, the Prem's kind of doing it on a case-by-case basis. And the Bundesliga, they've kind of gone with no fans to try and minimize, you know, the spread of the virus. And I think the Premier League is going to continue to kind of do what they're doing, just like if there's an outbreak, suspend the games and make it up later. Problem is, all these games eventually are going to have to get made up. You know, teams, you know, the Premier League, these days, you complain about, you know, already congested fixture schedules between, you know, the Champions League, League Cup, FA Cup. You know, Chelsea will have to go to the Club World Cup this month, beginning of next month, rather. You've got international breaks. So it's kind of a question about when these games can get made up. But the spread, you know, maybe we might be past, like, the, the first, the initial, like, big heat wave of Omicron. But, you know, there's African players going to the Cup of Nations right now. They're there getting ready to get that tournament underway. There's international breaks, like you mentioned, Keenan. Once the Champions League starts, teams are going to be traveling, you know, internationally. And players will be going to different countries all, all across the globe. And it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how it affects all the leagues because it, it definitely will based on how we're going. And I don't think any of the leagues want a 2020 situation, you know, on their hands again where you have to completely shut down. So I think, especially the Premier League, they're going to do everything in their power to stop that from happening, even if it means, you know, teams have to play three games in the span of, you know, a few days towards the end of the season to make up, you know, the lost time. Yeah, I agree with Nick. I think depth is such a major thing in soccer with injuries. And now with COVID, we're really seeing it because it's such an interesting virus where a lot of your endurance kind of suffers for it and it can suffer for a long time if you get COVID. So for a lot of these players, it might be in the benefit to have these games postponed to later so they can build themselves back up over time. I think in general, for a lot of clubs, we're going to see a reduction in the amount of fans even more so. I know some teams across the league have cut it in half that you can go to the games or eliminating it at all. And I think as we get into more like tournament, tur- tournament play, sorry, I think we're going to see a whole reduction in that, a whole reduction in fans. But I think one of the things that we aren't considering is the amount of travel. I think with now the Winter Olympics coming in, athletes all across these countries are going to be moving in and out, interacting with them. It's up to players to kind of restrict the amount of times they go out. I know there's been some cases with you know, athletes going out partying. That's another huge thing. It's about the teams really managing their players and sitting down and being like, okay, we got these important games coming up. We got to be protected as possible. You know, it's so hit or miss with this new variant that, you know, if you feel like you're protected, 
there's always the opportunity that something could happen. You never know. And it's just maintaining your team as best as possible and making sure you've got extra players on backup who are ready to go and are still continuing with practice. Yeah, I think two things. One, first, Maddie, as you touched on, a lot of the a lot of the pressure falls on these players. We see a bombing for Arsenal, you know, contracting COVID after a night out party. And it's slowly returning to that normalcy we saw in 2020 and into last season too of, you know, if you want to be able to be fit to participate and whether, you know, you get deathly sick with COVID or not, you have to take the precautions necessary to ensure that, you know, when it comes time for kickoff, you're not putting yourself and your teammates and everyone involved at a higher risk because of your social, your social life. But, you know, as we talk about international soccer and, you know, for the U.S., for example, because we know how important this upcoming window is in terms of CONCACAF and World Cup qualifying, we see in the, you know, the can- Canadian team that their January camp right now has been postponed. And in a window that in which they play the Canadian team and the Canadian team that sits on top of CONCACAF, it just gets so much more confusing as to when these games are going to be slipped in because, as we know with the league schedule, those international breaks are pretty much stamped from the time the schedule begins. And there's not really much wiggle room as to when these players are going to be allowed to leave. Luckily, Canada, you know, for instance, doesn't really suffer the way that some bigger countries would suffer if, you know, league play goes on as, as scheduled. Obviously, you lose the likes of Alfonso Davies, probably the biggest name for that Canadian team. But you know, you're not suffering the way that Europe, European teams would suffer if league pursuit, excuse me, league continues as scheduled. But in a previous conversation I had with my brother, the thing that we did note is that with the World Cup being flexed to October, November this upcoming year, there is some wiggle room into that early summer period. I've thought maybe you could see league and, you know, qualifying if necessary, be pushed back to June. You know, if not to get too political and, you know, health protocol-y, but we have seen in the past that as the weather gets nicer, cases tend to drop, at least in the past two years with COVID. So maybe that's a thought that, you know, if we need to, we can push into June a little bit, whether it be league, whether it be, you know, qualifying for the World Cup, whatever it may be, there is some time in June in which, you know, you're without major soccer. But I still think, too, it's just you can't really bank on, you know, the hope that, one day we're going to be able to schedule it because we're not going to prioritize health and safety right now. But all of that remains to be a giant question going forward. I'm personally most concerned with, you know, last year we got the scare of the Super League. And if we face another COVID outbreak, that's going to, in my opinion, going to become a bigger possibility than ever just because of the revenue lost by those big clubs. And they're going to find, need to find a way to generate it. And if the Super League wasn't a risk last year, if soccer shuts down again, it's certainly almost a, you know, a possibility and a likely possibility if soccer is shut down for an extended period of time, which we hope it isn't. But if it is, there's going to be a lot of questions in the soccer community being asked. But to conclude our, you know, sad but true COVID talks, because let's be real, in the, the co- my college career, you know, Nick and Maddie, you're both younger than I, but in our last three years, everything leading up to college has been surrounded by COVID. I think 
Both of you can give your speculations because we see the Serie A reduced to 5,000 max capacity in all stadiums. Is that a likely step that you're going you're gonna to see, you know, the FA in England or, you know, in the Champions League, no fans in the stands as a solution to curb COVID? Or do you think there just needs to be kind of wait and see, which is almost, you know, kind of a dumb, tedious protocol, but realistically, as far as I can see, like as long as everyone's vaccinated and has their booster and, you know, taking those steps, soccer should proceed as proceed as scheduled. And so I think it's just going to become what do the leagues in incorporation with, you know, larger soccer conglomerates such as UEFA or CONCACAF, what are they going to view as best for their entire product to be produced without hiccup? Yeah, and these leagues, you know, are already recovering off of, you know, almost a whole year, more over a whole year of kind of no revenue from fans being in the stands and then things go back to normal, you know, this past fall in, you know, all the top five leagues across Europe and the Champions League. And I think most of these leagues, we've seen the Bundesliga kind of, there's no fans right now, sort of due to governmental regulations. But, you know, with all the revenue that these teams lost, you know, and during like the heart of the pandemic, I think it would take something really extreme for them to like, for the leagues themselves to take action about, you know, limiting capacity and doing stuff like that to stop the spread. It would have to be like, you know, authority from above in terms of the government making those decisions. Cause I think these teams right now, you know, maybe teams like Chelsea or Liverpool aren't necessarily hanging on by a thread or even, no, I don't think the Premier League is a good example because of, you know, the massive TV deal they have. But we'll say the teams in the championship in the second division, the teams that, you know, are more community-based that rely so heavily, you know, on fans in the stands. And, you know, the TV money's not that great. You know, even if you go lower in League One, League Two, it's the revenue is almost all, you know, in terms of game day, you know, concessions and, and the fans just being in the stands buying tickets. And, you know, those teams, they really need those bodies and, you know, if they were to reduce capacity again, it might be, you know, really tough for some of those teams to survive. Yeah, I agree. I think what the major thing is less about a lot of the leagues and more about the countries in particular. I know Italy and France have had a really rough time these past couple weeks, and obviously we're seeing Serie A reducing their capacity. I think Italy as a whole, like, we're going to see minimal, if not no fans, in the next couple of weeks, honestly, with how it's been going. I think in England, the scenario is completely different where I would argue that soccer is probably its biggest, like in general. And I think they're going to keep fans in the stands no matter what. I think it's such a big deal there. Like Nick said, with the amount of fans that go in there, the TV deals, I think fans will continue to be there as long as, you know, their vaccination is in order. I think they want to reduce the amount of damage to that economic system as a whole more than anything. So I wouldn't be shocked if fans remain there, honestly, for the rest of the season, for even as COVID cases grow. But like you mentioned, Keenan, the summertime, I think when COVID cases drop a little bit, it, it won't make a difference. And I think that fans being there will, will just help them. So I don't, I don't think they're going to make a huge change there. Yeah. And you know, I think with if you're going to look at the summer as a buffer period into which you know you can schedule some games in there if necessary, I think that's when you'd probably see a return to the stadiums. And also, I think you know right now we're seeing a surge in the Omicron variant, just because 
everyone was used to life kind of almost free of COVID and then kind of coming back and people are reluctant to resume the precautions once taken. All that being said, I think it's optimistic for soccer of all sports, at least in my opinion, because they have the benefit of playing outside no matter where they play. That and, you know, it's so broad and, you know, so well-funded in most leagues and by most federations that if steps need to be taken care of, they will have the team and the tools necessary to do so. But on much, much happier news, winter is the best time of the year because of one thing and one thing only in soccer, and that is the transfer window. You know, hardly ever do we see an insane transfer window. And this winter so far hasn't been terrible. There's some big moves, some questionable moves, some teams not making moves. But probably the biggest news we have coming out of the transfers that some teams in the Premier League, such as Newcastle adding Trippier, as well as Villa adding Coutinho, those teams in the bottom definitely look to, well, in the case of Newcastle, look to avoid relegation just being bought by the Saudi group. And Trippier might be a step into the right direction with a pretty lousy defense in Newcastle. But I'm really interested in that Coutinho signing for Villa because you know his relationship with Gerrard, both playing together at Liverpool. But also Villa, I believe, is on the cusp of being really good once again. You know, last year they were certainly a standout side. But this year, too, they have the quality. They just, you know, sometimes get unlucky in their results. But adding a player like Coutinho not only adds that, you know, expertise in the midfield that you kind of lose when Jack Grealish checks out to go to City, but also he adds, I think, a layer of consistency that sometimes Villa is lacking just because every time he's on the pitch, whether it was at Liverpool, whether it was at Bayern, whether it was at Barca, every time he's on the pitch, the creativity was always present and there was always a threat going forward anytime the ball found his feet. So, Nick, I'm going to open it up to you to start. You know, we talk about Coutinho, Trippier, you know, Maitland Niles going to play with Mourinho in Rome. Are there any teams that you're still waiting to see make a move in this transfer window? Or conversely, let's just say outside of Coutinho, what's the biggest transfer splash signing that you've seen so far that you think will have big impacts across all leagues of Europe? Not necessarily a team that's not made a move yet, but I think Newcastle need a lot more than Kieran Trippier if they're going to stay up. I saw, I mean, today they lost in the FA Cup. You know, they got upset at home, one nothing to Cambridge United. You know, Trippier made his debut at right back. But they need a lot more. If, and it would be an absolute disaster if they went down after all the, you know, all the hype with the new ownership and all the money that's being poured in. They need a lot more signings, but... You know, it's easier said than done just buying players and throwing them out onto the field. Um, you know, chemistry is a real thing in soccer, and you can't just, you know, buy big-name players and expect them to, you know, get it together in the middle of a season. But, I mean, I think anything's better than what Newcastle have right now. And I'd say it's not looking good. That result today in the FA Cup is not great, but, you know, they need to get it together, and they need more than Trippier to do that. I'm a big fan of the Coutinho signing at Aston Villa, too. Um, you know, Villa's midfield – you know, I love, they're, they're very more physical, hardworking. You know, you've got Douglas Louise in there and John McGinn and even, you know, Jacob Ramsey, the, James, Jacob Ramsey, the youngster. Um, but, you know, attacking, they brought in Brendia this summer and he's been a little disappointing and they lost Grealish, obviously. So, you know, they need some creativity going forward. You know, they have Danny Ings up front, but Coutinho seems like the perfect player, you know, on his day that can kind of unlock the creativity that Villa need. Um, to be a more, you know, 
aesthetically pleasing side going forward and a side that can score more goals. Um, they sit 13th right now, and I think they can really climb higher with Coutinho in that team. Also, I'm a big fan of Ferran Torres, you know, moving to Barcelona. I think, you know, he's a little hard done by at City. You know, with all the depth that they have, it was hard for him to get opportunities. But I think he showed last year he's a very good player. You know, this year he hasn't really gotten many chances. He's only played, you know, four games in the Premier League, but he's got two goals and an assist. You know, whether or not Barcelona can really afford that transfer, that's a different story. But I think he's a player that, you know, if they can get him registered, which, you know, for some reason it seems to be kind of a mess right now about how they can register him. It seems like they need more players to exit. But I think if they can get that Ferran Torres uh, situation kind of settled down and he can come into the team, he'd be a real asset for Barcelona. Yeah, I think in general, the Coutinho trade was the biggest one for me. I, I genuinely love when you hear about uh, old teammates reconnecting with old teammates and really getting players doing a lot of the recruiting for teams. Uh, I think hearing from a former teammate being like, hey, we really want you here. You know, as a player, you want to be wanted by your new team. And especially because he's been so reluctant in the past to leave. I think that this familiarity is really important. And I think it has a good sign for Villa, honestly. And I'm very excited for it. I think he's, a, I, like we talked about, I think Coutinho is great. I think him being back with a fellow teammate is also very good for chemistry. I think chemistry, like we said, is very important. And when you're trying to build up a team, you really want that foundation there or else you're not going to have success. So I think in general, that was the biggest one for me. That was my favorite. I'm excited to see what happens. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a good move overall. And I think personally, you know, to continue talking about the Premier League, and Nick, you know, you mentioned some teams maybe not making moves or, you know, you don't think that Newcastle moves is enough. And I agree with you. I'm surprised we haven't seen anything from United. You know, I know that you just brought in Ronaldo over the summer. He's supposed to be huge. And Sancho, and he, he hasn't really panned out or played as much as maybe you'd like in that role. And, you know, Donny van der Beek is still a question mark in that team in terms of his role. But under new direction, and it's clear that Ragnar, Ragnick is going upstairs after this year. But, you know, knowing that, I was very curious to see and I'm waiting to see if he, you know, he's going to take a more senior role within the club. If he was going to go out and try and get anyone during this transfer window to, you know, not only set the team up for a position to finish well this year and maybe sneak in the top four and get Champions League soccer back, but also because he's going into a senior role, kind of set up what coach he wants to fulfill, what, what coach he wants to take his shoes when he's done or, you know, if he can institute some players that are going to maybe make a coaching hire more appealing because as great as United is, it's still that big question mark as it has been since Solskjaer took over as to what can he get out of these players, you know, with an aging Ronaldo and, you know, Cavani's no, no spring chicken either. I think it's going to be really curious to see if United is willing to shell out any cash right now and try and put themselves in a position to not only, you know, finish in the top four within the Premier League, but also set themselves up to be an attractive coaching destination. Because, you know, with the legacy and the lore of that club, that's attraction enough. But when you haven't won anything recently, it kind of is, you know, begs the question if you're a, a candidate of, do I really want to go here and, you know, be a manager when I'm not sure what I'm getting in bed with and I might get ran out of town just like the three previous bosses have had of me. 
Yeah, every coach that seems to go to United seems to, at least recently, you know, in the post Sir Alex Ferguson era, seems to kind of get thrown under the bus by the players and the fans, you know, for whatever reason. You know, I think Oleg Gunnar Solskjaer, obviously, we could all see he's, he's out of his depth a little bit. He's not a great manager, but the United squad and the way they play and the way they act and the way they behave, it really, it's just kind of sad to see a little bit. They don't have anywhere near the same kind of fight or vigor that we saw, you know, in the early 2000s with, with Ferguson as the manager. And it's just kind of the club's downfall. It's just they've just been on a downward trajectory for so long. And, you know, United, when they got Ragnick, you know, people were excited, but he's still just the interim manager. And I'm not sure how much the board wants to, you know, let him invest in the squad. But it's clear that right now the squad is not – anywhere near the, the level that it needs to be if they want to compete for not even a title, just for a top four position. You know, it's so unbalanced in the midfield with players like, you know, McTominay and Matic and Fred, not really able to hold down the middle and they've got all the attacking talent, but you know, they can't seem to like work the ball to them in a good manner. And, you know, players individually have had disappointing season, you know, Ronaldo's been good mostly, but players like Marcus Rashford have been really disappointing. He's not really been able to recapture any of that form that he's gotten previously, you know, in previous years when he's looked like he's going to break out. And Jaden Sancho has been disappointing. Vanderbeek, as you mentioned, Keenan hasn't really gotten any opportunities. So, and you don't really hear anything about them wanting to invest this winter. So I think they're just going to, you know, for the most part, kind of hang tight. But, you know, United, we've really talked about them, you know, all fall on the podcast about, you know, how, all he needs to go and now he's gone and, you know, things look, you know, just as bad, if not worse, you know, that performance against Wolves the other Wolves the other day was really not great. And, you know, when Phil Jones at the back is kind of your bright spot, that kind of says a lot about, about where your team is at right now. Yeah. I think for them, it is a big internal problem. I don't even think they should be looking otherwise. I think with the amount of stories that have come out recently after the Wolves loss, they have a problem with the teammates, with coaching. They don't get along. There's concerns about playing time. There's outbursts happening in the locker room. For an incoming player who might have an interest in United, it's a real setback, and I don't know how many people would really want to get in this mess internally, even if they somehow can recover these next couple games. I think there has to be some sort of leadership that's shown that has to come over time. But when you deal with big name players, you have big problems. You have competing personalities. You have these big issues, even if these players don't perform. We talked about Rashford. You know, people get upset when they don't play well. And for them to start looking elsewhere, I think would be a big mistake during this winter. So I think they just have to focus on themselves if we really want to see anything. I think they definitely can bounce back after these past couple unfortunate games, but looking elsewhere is to me the wrong idea. You know, keeping us moving here, guys, before we wrap, there's one last storyline this winter to talk about, and that's coming up next week, which is the 2022 MLS Super Draft. Meta, you talked about it at the start of the show. Charlotte being added into MLS, they get the first overall pick. NYCFC winning MLS Cup, they're going to get the last pick at 28. 
but the MLS was not quite itself this fall slash winter transfer window. You know, you got Daryl DK moving from Orlando City to West Bromwich Albion, and then probably the biggest one who made his debut today on Saturday, Ricardo Pepe going to uh, Augsburg in the Bundesliga. For me, you know, MLS super draft is always hit or miss in terms of what you're getting, just because the question is always, what's the ceiling on these players? How many of these guys are taking out of college that are coming into the league, you know, at 23, which realistically is probably two years off their prime down the road. How many of these guys are going to be able to produce for what? But I think the bright spot is of the super draft is it allows, you know, college guys to reach the upper level and not be disenfranchised for going to play at a university. And so that all being said, Maddie, I'll let you start because it's Charlotte and they're picking first. You know, I'm looking here on MLS.com, top two guys that are on the border, probably Ben Bender, you know, and midfielder from the University of Maryland, um, or then Kip Keller from SLU. You know, I had the fortunate pleasure of covering some Fordham soccer this fall, um, and he was just a sentinel in the A-10 at the back, probably the best center back in college soccer this year. He's probably going to be – monumental not only for whoever drafts him but I could see him realistically sliding into the national team at some point in his career if he continues to progress the way he had at SLU so Maddie Charlotte first on the clock where would you like your hometown team and who would you like your hometown team to draft I think the obvious choice is Kip I think if you go any other route it's just not as certain for me I think like we mentioned, he's played Fordham a couple times this year. They played twice. We both, um, they both lost, Fordham lost both times to SLU. And I think defensively, he is such a great player and you need that kind of key position as a center back to really form that back line, especially when you're coming into a new team. I think that's the best place to start. I played defense growing up, so I always have believed in the strength of a back line and that kind of falls into place for the rest of your team. If he doesn't go first, I'd genuinely be shocked. I think for me, the super draft is very interesting. I, I really like when college players are given the opportunity and given the chance to break out. I think the MLS finally is getting more attention over the last couple of years. I know my Throughout my childhood, MLS was not that big in my state. It wasn't that big for me. Um, but we also saw Insigne come to Toronto. That's another big move for MLS. Getting those international players interested in, like, this American-Canadian soccer, to me, is really big. And I, I'm very excited for the Super Draft. I think there's some potential. Ben Bender, I just don't see him going to Charlotte. I don't know why Charlotte would take him personally. I think the better choice is Kip. That could always change. You never know. Teams are very finicky. But I think for them, this being their inaugural season, taking a center back is the best move. Yeah, I, I agree that Keller's kind of your best option there because, you know, he has the potential. I, I saw a little bit of Fordham soccer this year. And, you know, knowing St. Louis in the A-10, how, much of a, how great of a run they had in the tournament. Um, he was just really solid at the back and he's kind of got the potential to be a leader, you know, for many years in the future. And when you talk about, as Keenan asked, you know, like the ceiling of these guys in the super draft and, you know, what's the highest possible, you know, level that these guys can play at. And you, 
for me, I'll look at, you know, Daryl DK, who just made a big money move to West Brom in the championship. We're fighting for promotion in the Premier League. He was, you know, the fifth overall pick in the 2020 Super Draft. So it's still a legitimate way, you know, to build your career and get going in MLS and maybe make a move abroad. Even though we're seeing, you know, more often, you know, these kids coming from academies like Ricardo Pepe, who just moved to Augsburg. The Super League or the Super Draft, rather, is still an option, you know, even though maybe its importance is waning a little bit as, you know, more and more and more MLS seems to put the emphasis on, you know, academy development, but it's still a good opportunity for college players to make a jump to the next level and maybe even higher than that. I think, you know, rounding out our MLS talk because the super draft, you know, you can draft these guys out of college, but I think it's most, most comparable to, you know, the NHL draft where, you just take a big risk because as you mentioned, Nick, you know, you've got not only national academies, but also, you know, polling young guys from international leagues too. You know, the MLS recently has fallen in love with, you know, picking guys up from like the Colombian national leagues or, you know, the other CONCACAF nations um, and, you know, picking those guys up from a young age and bringing them to the MLS. And sometimes those guys will leapfrog like, you know, like a Miguel Almiron, excuse me, and, you know, go play at Newcastle in the Prem and be dominant. So it's, you know, weighing all that. But the other biggest transfer news was that Insignia, Lorenzo Insignia, you know, won the Euro this past year, played with Inter, with Napoli, excuse me, for what seems like a lifetime, moves to Toronto FC, kind of following the path of Sebastian Jovinko, a fellow Italian who we know, in his tenure in the MLS was just absolutely phenomenal. Before we wrap, guys, what do we think of the Insignia move? Does it do better for the MLS? Does it hurt the MLS? Just because we know, say, five, ten years ago when you, know, you had your Pirlo, your Schweinsteiger, your Villa, your Lampard, even your Ibrahimovic, had all these older legends of the days past in Europe come to the MLS and kind of flop just because they're playing at such high levels and now they're older and they're playing with younger guys who aren't as experienced as the likes of their former teammates. And there's a bit of a change in terms of playing style. Do we think Insignia is going to be like Giovinco who just completely dominates the MLS or are there going to be growing pains and he just doesn't pan out the way Toronto sees, or is this just his move to get to some nicer weather, play in the summer and collect a paycheck? I think it'll be more of a, a Giovinco situation because you know, when you talk about guys like Schweinsteiger and Perlo and Lampard and Jarrett moving to MLS, they were, you know, past, well past their prime in their late 30s. You know, Insigne is only 30. And he was having a good year, you know, for Napoli in Serie A this season. You know, 16 matches, four goals, five assists. It's not like he was, you know, he's declined a little bit in terms of goal scoring from last year. He scored 19 um, in Serie A. But he was a key part of their team that won the Euros. This is a guy who's Maybe if he's not exactly in his prime, he's just past it. But he's still very much a good player and at his peak. And when you talk about the Giovinco comparison, you know, Insigne is 10 times the player Giovinco was in terms of what they've done in Europe. Giovinco never really got that big of an opportunity with the Italian national team. Insigne has been a key part of it, you know, for many years. And he's been one of the best wingers in Europe for a while. Giovinco never really reached that level. So I think if Insigne approaches it with the same attitude as, you know, in, uh, Giovinco or maybe someone like Joseph Martinez did. Um, he's got the potential to tear up this league and, you know, win MVP awards and be the best player in this league, because this is probably one of the most marquee transfers MLS has had in a while. 
you know, maybe she's not as big of a name as Lampard or Gerard, but in terms of, you know, the age that he's at right now at 30 years old, you know, the amount of money he signed for, you know, Italy are hoping to play in the World Cup, you know, this winter. Um, they've got to play that playoff round. But, you know, for someone who would be, you know, right there starting for the Italian national team to make this kind of move that possibly would risk his, you know, his selection for the national team. Um, it's a big move for MLS. It's a huge move. And I'm really excited to see how he does in Toronto. Yeah, I agree. I think he's at an age where I don't see him flopping as much. And I, I honestly was shocked at first when I read it because I had like very loosely followed Toronto last season. They finished like, I think second to last in their conference in the Eastern conference. And so for me, I always love to see a big shakeup when you have a team that wasn't really performing in a previous season and you get this big transfer coming in, it, it boosts morale to me in a way that even if the team maybe can't fit it together in the first couple of games, you get that big boost of this player really wants to come play for us. And I think for young players, especially in the MLS, that's a huge deal. And I think it gives some recognition to these kids that a leader can come in and help them develop. And, you know, I, I haven't really heard his input. I haven't heard any quotes from him. So I'm interested to see what he ends up saying about the deal and everything. But I thought it was a big move for MLS. I'm very excited for it. I think there's, he has a lot of potential still. I think what we saw with Italy in the World Cup and everything, I think it's going to be a big deal. Even if I don't see them jumping too far ahead in the Eastern Conference, I think they did it. They can do enough to where they might not have to sit second to last. So, Yeah, I think, you know, with Insigne being introduced, it, he's also just has the ability to make every player around him 10 times better just by, you know, the pure talent and the threat that he is that, you know, moving forward, if you're Toronto, you don't have to worry about trying to sign a striker that has to be your predominant goal scorer because Insigne is going to be that for pretty much until he's retired or until he moves out of Toronto just because of the skill that he possesses. And we saw it at Napoli. We saw it at, at, on the Italian national team that so long as he's fit, he's a threat anytime he's on the ball in the attacking third. And if you're Toronto, you know, after kind of a shocking season last season in the 2021 season for the MLS, you make a splash signing like that and you think, okay, realistically, the sky's the limit because if Insignia's in form, we know that we just need to probably concede no more than one or two goals and he'll be able to produce at least five good scoring opportunities per game for us. That's going to wrap it up for us, folks. Super fun first show of 2022. You know, we don't know what the year has in store for us. We saw some transfer moves now, hopefully some later. You know, COVID, big red flag, big question mark. Hopefully everything proceeds as scheduled so that we can keep making these fun videos and podcasts for you guys but also so that we can continue to watch really high level, good high level soccer, because it has been a treat across all of Europe. You know, CONCACAF qualifying is coming back. U.S. is in a position where realistically they should qualify. We'll see if we have another Trinidad moment. But that being said, we hope that, you know, at least we can watch them have that Trinidad moment rather than it being taken from us. But for Nick Guzman, Maddie Biamonte, I'm Keenan Troy. Take care, guys. We will see you next week.